Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So here we are. We're starting Vizot Habracha, Deuteronomy 33. I heard some of you saying you liked it when you could see the Yad on the Torah scroll during the holidays so you could follow along. Well, this is almost as good. So you can follow along here. Vizot Habracha. So this is the bracha that Moshe blessed. Moshe, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Lamo. So we have a creek tiv here. Um, this is how uh, this is how Safaria deals with a creek tiv. If we were in the chapel, you would have a gray word here, and then out to the side, it would be written in black. So God says, Misenai from Sinai. He shone upon them from Seir. He appeared from Mount Paran and approached from Rivavot Kodesh lightning flashing at them from his right. Lover indeed of the people, their hallowed are all in your hand. They followed your steps, accepting your pronouncements. When Moses charged us with the teaching as the heritage of the congregation of Jacob, then he became king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people assembled the tribes of Israel together. Verse four, you see in the Hebrew, Torah tziva lanu Moshe. So you're, they're adding the word when here in English. In Hebrew, we just get Torah tziva lanu Moshe. Torah commanded us Moshe. And so this is a very, very famous uh, song that we start singing as kids. Torah, 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 tziva lanu Moshe. Very complicated, as you can say. Um, all right. So what happens right here is that Moshe is about to die. And what Moshe does at the end is he blesses the people with the words that God, right? This, this is attributed to God, um, but, but, he, but he's going to bless the people because that's, that's what is called for as he comes to this moment of his death. All right. Um, so he's making this bracha. So he's going to bless each of them. May Reuben live and not die. Here's Judah. Here's Levi. So we're getting all of the tribes, Binyamin, Yosef, Manasseh, Zvulun, Gad, Dan, Naphtali, Asher. All right. Ending that chapter is Ashrecha Yisrael, happy is Israel, who is like you, a people delivered by Adonai, your protecting shield, your sword triumphant, your enemies shall come cringing before you, and you shall tread on their backs. All right, chapters, I want to go to chapter 34. Moses went up from the steeps of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Yericho, and Adonai showed him the whole land, Gilead, as far as done. So this tells us something about the borders of Israel at this point, right? So that's, that's how historians kind of look at what, what, what exactly com comprised um, the territory that was known as Israel at different times. So the, when this author is writing, it's mi Gilad from Gilad to Dan. And if you've been to Israel and you've hiked until Dan, it is way up north, right? All Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea. So we know, right, that's the Mediterranean. The Negev and the plain, the valley of Yericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And God said to him, this is the land which I swore to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. And it's interesting because who's referenced here? Zar Acha, your seed. But it's interesting. Who do we usually hear that about, right? You know, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. We don't hear it about Moshe because Moshe has two sons, but, but they're not going to lead. They're not going to be 
right? So this is your seed, meaning your descendants, right? That God promised it to the descendants of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And now, you know, Moshe understands, right, in a different way that this is, that these are his, these are his people that will inherit the land and he will not. So Moshe, the servant of God, died there in the land of Moab at the command of yud heh But notice what it says in the Hebrew in verse 5. Vayamat sham Moshe, and Moshe died there. Eved Adonai, the servant of yud heh Be'eretz Moab, in the land of Moab, Alpi yud heh Literally, by the mouth of God. The rabbis, the rabbis take this literally. So they do not translate this as died at the command of God. Instead, they translate this literally. Moshe died by the mouth of God. And we'll talk about that. Vayikbo oto vagai. So he buried him. Who buried him? Right? So that's kind of an interesting question. Who buried Moshe? He's up there alone. So for the rabbis, this is God. That God buried Moshe. Uh, in the land of Moab, Mul Beit Peor, across from Beit Peor, or near Beit Peor, Ish et Kavurato Ad Hayom Hazeh. This is really important because they didn't have to add this, but they did. The authors added this tag, and it is not known to anyone his burial place until this day. Moshe was 120 years old when he died. Hence the expression, may you live to 120. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the Israelites bewailed Moshe in the steps of Moab for 30 days. The period of wailing and mourning for Moshe came to an end. And Yehoshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moshe had laid his hands upon him. So here in the Hebrew, from this word, he placed his hands on Yehoshua. From here, we get the word ordination for rabbis. Moshe places his hands on Yehoshua, gives him of the zappage of Sinai. And that is how rabbis are ordained today. Someone lays, another rabbi lays their hands on the candidate and then gives them smicha, gives them this, um, this charge that started at Sinai. So, and charge in every sense. Um, And like this literal connection to the energy of Sinai and Moshe. Um, that comes down. The only movement that doesn't do that, of course, is Reconstructionism. Reconstructionist Judaism does not have smicha. We do not ordain. Reconstructionist rabbis graduate and we are handed a diploma. And that is how we become rabbis. We are given the title because of our learning of Rav. Rav means abundant, wide. And so we are given the title Rav, one who has achieved an abundance of learning. Um, and that in English is rabbi. So we have a document that says that she will now be known as a rabbi, as rabbi and teacher in Israel. And it is a diploma. It, we do not get smicha. Never again. This is the end of one of my father of blessed memory, his favorite piyutim that we used to sing in shul, um, Yigdal. Yidal Elohim Chai, for those of you who grew up with it, So the end, the end of that. So there never again arose in Israel a prophet like Moshe, who knew Yud Hevavhe Panim El Panim, face to face for the various signs and wonders that God sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country. And for all the great might and awesome power that Moshe displayed before all Israel. And we say together, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. We have just finished the book of Deuteronomy. We will start 
spray sheet to end our lesson today because we never have a break between, God forbid, books of Torah, but especially we don't have a break between between uh, ending the book, the Torah and beginning Torah again. So we will, somebody will remind me, I'm sure, because <laughs> I could forget by then um, to start the book of Breshit. So unmute yourself if you'd like to ask the question. So, so the when Moses died by the mouth of Adonai, would that be the kiss before dying? Is that the origin of that so what do you mean the kiss before dying it's just kind of a common term <laughs> people I've say never heard it. So, <laughs> so what does it mean the i don't know a kiss, a kiss before dying or uh the fatal kiss um i've just heard it all my life interesting so okay so so for the wondering rabbis, if that's the origin so for the rabbis god God takes Moshe's life force by mouth. Oh. So the same way, if you recall in Breshit, in Genesis, God breathes the breath mm-hmm. of life into the Adam and, and the Adam, the clay being becomes animated. What oh. animates the human being is the spirit of God. So God breathes that into the human being in Breshit and here, God once again breathes in, presumably, the spirit, the soul, the energy of the human being as an act of love and kindness. This is seen as an act of incredible intimacy between God and Moshe. No one else dies this way, right? So it's it's a gift that God gives Moshe that Moshe dies Alpi Adonai by the mouth of God. This is all according to the rabbis because you can translate Alpi as by the command of. Mm. You know, so he literally sucked the life out of him. So that's how the rabbis choose to translate Alpi. Yeah, okay. that God breathes I, I go with that. back into God's self, Moshe's life force um, as a as a loving act of closeness and intimacy. Um, it, it, cause it does, it feels a little weird for Moshe, the beloved of God that, Mo, that Moshe goes up there and God says, what? Okay. I command you to die. Like when Moshe is supposed to make that happen. Like, how do you fulfill the commandment? Okay. Yeah. Die. Right. It, like, so for the rabbis, it doesn't. And even for me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It could be that God just says die and Moshe dies, right? But then that's not really a command. So again, it could be by mouth that God says die and Moshe dies, but it just feels it just feels awkward. However, you think about it, mm-hmm. um, and for the rabbis, they solve it by by having it be this very loving um, act by God. This this last intimacy with Moshe is to is to breathe Moshe's life force back into God's self. So Moshe, mm-hmm. of course, dies as a result. Amy, right. yeah, Amy, Amy, yeah. There, there, there is a, a tradition in. Um, in Platonism, that the, of the death of the kiss, as somebody comes and kisses you, and it draws the breath out of you uh, into the beyond. So, could this also mean that God breathes in, as you've described it, but also that God, in some senses, sucks the soul of Moses out of him? Yes, it's privileged, obviously, an enormously privileged death, but it is a death kiss. Yes. Or the kiss of death. Yes. I think that's how the rabbis see it. Yes. Exactly. Somebody else had a question? David? Yeah, I've been to uh, Mount Nebo and the view is just breathtaking. And it just struck me when the passage said that no one knows where Moses was buried. But wouldn't it be logical that it would be there or close to it? Or, you know, why would it? be any other place than Jordan, I mean, Mount Nebo. So, so we kind of know the area, but the point of adding that tag is to be very, very, very clear that any tour guide who tells you they're taking you to the place that Moshe is buried is lying. And well, they're scamming you. And that is exactly what they do, right? They take you to Sinai, 
and you get up at, at before dawn and you climb Sinai and it is a ripoff. Now, I'm not saying it isn't a pro- profoundly powerful experience as if you were the Israelites receiving Torah Sinai. Of course, that could be very, very powerful, but it ain't Sinai, right? Because we don't know where Sinai is. We know kind of the area, but we do not know where Moshe is buried. The author makes it very explicit that nobody knows because they wanted to, desperately wanted to avoid having the burial place of Moshe become a focal point. Uh. Very much wanted that that people don't go Davka to where Moshe is buried and make pilgrimage. They did not want that to happen. They did not want that to become a Hebron. Exactly. They did not want it to become Hebron. They did not want it to be the focus. They wanted that Moshe's death remain mysterious and only between Moshe and God. And, and I'm going to read a little bit from you, El Shai. And, the, and the, th- that's, that's our work, is to deal with the fact that we don't have a place to go. Mm-hmm. Right? That's so much for me of the work of Judaism. We don't have an idol to represent the divine. We don't have an Asherah, a tree, right, <laughs> to represent God. We don't have any representation. That's hard work. It's really hard to relate to a God you have no physical representation of. And and so the work continues with this tradition that we don't know where Moshe's burial place is because, of course, who wouldn't want to go there? Wouldn't we all want to go there, right? And so that's exactly the instinct and the urge that the author is working against to say, mm sorry, you can want it all you want it, but it ain't going to happen. You have to live without Moshe, period, which is hard, I have a, hard a work. a comment and a question. Yes, sir. We're talking about places to go. How does the wall, the Kotel fit with all this? Well, I has think. That become, has that become like, for some people, like an idol? So I, I think so. I think for sure the Kotel has become a problem exactly in the way that the authors of this text are trying to prevent. Moshe's burial place becoming so um, because what happens is the place gets focused on so much right that then it it can become contentious and it can steal the thunder and steal the 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 intention of what you're focused why you're focusing on it in the first place so with the with the coattail with the wall why why is that such a focus point because that is the closest we can get to you know, what was left of the temple, even though it's an outer retaining wall, it's not a wall of the temple. It's an outer retaining wall that's mostly Turkish. (laughs) It's mostly not original, but it's the closest people can get. And so that becomes the focus of the, the holy place. And what winds up happening is so much disgusting behavior that it flies right in the face of everything holiness is supposed to be about, that we fight over it, we argue over who has control of it, who's allowed in. Do you have to cover your shoulders? <clears throat> said so. You know, I mean, it just—it's so awful what happens at the wall, and that is exactly what the author here is trying to avoid: is having his burial place become what people care about about Moshe, rather than the Torah Shetzivalanu Moshe, the Torah that Moshe commanded us. That's why we're supposed to be attached to Moshe. And how am supposed to be attached to Moshe, right? Amy, Amy, I'm sure that if we knew where Moses was buried, women would not be allowed there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure, right? Absolutely. At least at least in Israel. Maybe, you know, maybe it was an internationally controlled site in Jordan and Moab. But in Israel, oh, forget about it. The Orthodox have control of all of those things, right? Amy, I have one more one more comment, and you probably know better where this is from than I, but I believe in the Talmud, uh, it says that the Torah begins and ends with acts of loving kindness, and the two things cited are that Adam and Eve were naked and God clothed them, and the other one is that he was buried in the in in Moab because it or that God buried him in Moab. God, right? God, it didn't it didn't have to say that God buried him. He could just say he died. 
Right. And I believe from this comes the mitzvah of burying the dead and the importance of respect from the, isn't that part of this? Well, burying the dead has always been right. the way, right? You know, that, that, that was always what happened, even pre-Israel. Um, but I think what, what it does do, this text, is that, is that it has God doing that act, so that human beings understand from reading this text that that's how big a mitzvah it is to bury mm-hmm. someone, is that even God does it for Moshe. Um, and again, and it's made explicit. It could have just said, and Moshe died there. And that's the end. But it, it, it makes it very clear that God buried Moshe, right? So, um, so that that is a, an incredibly loving act that God does God's self. How dare we delay or try to you know get out of in any way the mitzvah of of taking care of our dead um michael elena i have a question um shmini artseret what is it exactly and how does it tie into this time period okay so we'll, we'll get there alexandra saying how did the people know that moshe had died it's a good question <laughs> because we don't actually get the we don't get them being told. Um, so lots of times in Torah, we have to kind of fill in the blank, right? We have to kind of try to figure out, can you figure out who that is, Bert? Okay, we got it. Um, so, so often we have to try to figure out wh- what part did we, what part is not written here, right? And so this is where Midrash comes in. These are where the beautiful Midrashim of the rabbis come from are some of these questions. Like, wait a minute, how did they know he was dead? So there'll be a midrash that says, before he went up to the mountain, he gathered the people and right, told them he was about to die. There's a whole ton of midrash about Moshe's death um, and about him bargaining with God to not die. Are you kidding me? Look at what I've done for this people. They've been driving me crazy, right? And here I am like ready to you know, to continue and take them into the promised land and you won't let me, that's not fair. So there's all this midrash, and so um, that's that's some of how that gets written. Is we don't know. That was a long answer to say we don't know how the people knew. Um, also, Rabbi Amy, mm-hmm. um, I know this doesn't have to necessarily relate to the the reading today, but you had said that Reconstructionist rabbis are graduate versus being ordained, and why why that distinction? So the Reconstructionist movement, one of the things that was really important to Kaplan and his, his students who founded the movement was that there is not a supernatural God and there is not a supernatural event on Sinai through which we get made somehow closer to God than other people, right? So Moshe is closest to God more than other people. We just read it. He's the only one to experience God, Panim El Panim. So Moshe gives of some of his magic, you know, his power, his electricity from God to Joshua. And that's how Joshua becomes the leader. And then according to rabbinic tradition, then Joshua gives it to his successor. And this goes on and on until the court, the Sanhedrin, so the Sanhedrin is then made the carrier of the zappage from Sinai. And then everyone who gets ordained after that, right, shares in that zappage back to Sinai. And, and the Reconstructionist movement wanted to say very clearly, we do not believe that. We do not believe rabbis somehow get something by a laying on of hands from another rabbi that the rest of the people Israel do not have. It is completely a degree of learning. The title Rav is a title, and it is a title of respect for sure. But it is not, it, our, our basic self is not changed the way, the way that smicha seems to suggest. Like you now, by the laying on of hands, you are now a rabbi. You are now ordained. It means you, you have changed fundamentally because of that experience. And Reconstructionism rejects that utterly and completely. We, there's nothing different about a rabbi than anybody else from the Jewish people other than a certain degree of learning 
and we've talked before about and maybe you know the, the commitment to serving the Jewish people. So it's not that we're not different, but but we're not fundamentally different in any way. And Reconstructionism felt you know the people who founded the movement felt very very strongly about that. So I, it's always like a <laughs> I get tempted to give a very long answer when people say, "So you're an ordained rabbi?" Like I want to go. Sit down. Are you ready for to have a conversation? Because this could take a while. <laughs> like to, to be able to do weddings, you have to register you, and you have to register with the civil authority downtown as an ordained rabbi. And I'm like, OK, well, I have some issues here, but I'm just going to suck it up and say yes. All right. So um, and, and so I have if we have a little time, a, a funny story. So I was in Duluth, as you all know, I was in Minnesota. So I had to go and take them my credentials in order to be registered to do weddings and do them legally in, in Minnesota. So I said, OK, but like I don't have like a little card that is my credential. Like I I have my degree, you know, my and if you've been in my office, you've seen this huge framed monstrosity. Right. That is my diploma. And she said, just bring the credentials that prove you're an ordained rabbi. I'm like, I, I'm trying to tell you that. I, and this went on for like 15 minutes. And I was like, okay, you know what? Fine. That's what I will do. So I took the thing off the wall, put it in my car, drove down to the civil authorities. And it was one of those, those places that has the counter that's like up here, you know, so like, you know, so, so, so she's busy. What I carry the thing in, I put it against the wall and so we do all the paperwork and she says, okay, now I need your credentials that prove you're an ordained rabbi. And I went, okay, reached out and grabbed this huge thing. And I said, I tried very hard for this not to happen, but you know, like, like nobody could help me. So good luck. <laughs> so she had to take that to the copy machine. It was, it was just one of those, it should have just been a Saturday Night Live sketch. I mean, she took it to the copy machine. I'm like this, okay, whatever, people. Not going to work. Not going to work. All right. So that's um, that's that. All right. Uh, someone, did, Michael and Elena, does someone have? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one rather fun. When Michelangelo finished his great statue uh, of Moses, which is now in San Pietro in Vincoli, um, we, we learn that the entire Jewish community of Renaissance Rome rushed out to see Moses uh, and to, to especially obviously to gaze upon the Michelangelo. So, so Moses gets to be worshipped in, in Renaissance Rome via Michelangelo. Right. <laughs> the, other, the, other, the other thing is that in Christianity, you also have this range from the extreme Catholic position that says the priest is ordained in a very special way by the laying hand, laying on of hands, all the way down to Quaker, Quakers and other uh, groups that, that insist, as you do, that uh, there, there is no, nothing special other than the world of learning and dedication and commitment, but there's no mysterious laying on of hands. Right. So, so there's there's that same tension, you know, in other traditions, right? About what yes. do we do with our clergy? Yeah. Like yeah. how do we understand yeah. the role of clergy and the reality of clergy? And I don't I don't know I don't know what the Muslims um, believe. Perhaps that might be interesting to they to don't know. they don't have clergy. Right, right. Right. The Imam that. is not clergy as far as I understand it, right? That, that they, that person leads and teaches and preaches, but it's not clergy as we understand it in Judaism and Christianity and some other. And other anybody in the, anybody in the um, community can play the role of Imam right. if he's not present. So it's kind of like Shaliach Tzibor in our tradition, the, the prayer leader, right? Is that anyone can lead tefillah. You don't have to be a rabbi to do any of those things. You don't have to be a rabbi to marry people. You don't have to be a rabbi to bury and do a funeral. Anybody from the people of Israel can do any of those things. It's the United States that requires yes. a rabbi to marry Jews for it to be legal under our civil system. But according to Judaism, anyone can perform the wedding. Because yeah. it's not it's not the clergy making someone married. It's people making promises in front of witnesses and exchanging a token of that promise. Right. And so that that's what affects 
their status in halacha, not anything else. So, um, so they, they marry each other, essentially. And I think um, every, every Mormon is technically a bishop. There you which, go. Which is always a, amazing to those of us who are brought up in a different Episcopal system. Right. Judith? I was thinking about not laying hands on a, ra- on a potential rabbi to turn him into a rabbi. That kind of erases a mystery, uh, 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 a magical element to it. It makes it more human yeah. to have it with a degree, even though it's tough to get to the copy machine. <laughs> it's more human and it makes the rabbi equal to the people that he or she is teaching. And that was exactly their point. That's right. exactly what they believed. And they thought that that was a really important tenant of Judaism. Right. Um, is that the rabbi is just another one of the people who hopefully earns respect by teaching and leading by example. You know, so it's not that that they shouldn't be held in regard, God forbid, but um, but you don't get it from some magical intervention that therefore somehow changes fundamentally, you know, something about you. And and they wanted to be very clear. And that's kind of the trend of reconstruct. It's not the trend. It's the principle of reconstructionism in general to take away the magical things and give us a pattern of life that is realistic, not magical. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right. So I want to look at Yael Shai, who just writes about this so beautifully, I think. Here she's quoting the end. I mean, that chapter that we just read, 34. And no prophet arose in Israel like Moses, whom yod heh knew face to face. In this scene of remarkable tenderness, Moses climbs the mountain and looks at the land that his people will enter. And then God takes his life with a kiss, according to Rashi, and then buries Moses in a mysterious and unknown location with Joshua in position to take over. Moses's only job is to let go of his life. And our only job is to let go of Moses. It is harder than I thought it would be. I'm sure Joshua is great and all, but the text itself says that Israel never knew another prophet like Moses. Even though I knew it was coming, Moses's loss is a tough one to take. Something about his struggle and his grit, his insecurity and his faith made me feel close to him as I read about his journey each week. I feel a great sadness and loss when he climbs that mountain and dies I feel clingy to Moses and to all the real people in my life whom I want to remain alive forever. Why does he have to die? Why does everyone have to die? So she talks about one Hasidic tale describes the actual process of death as so gentle and quiet. It was like picking up a piece of hair out of a bowl of milk. So why do we fear death? Why does Moses beg and plead to avoid it according to the Midrashim? Why is there a long legacy of Hasidic Rebbes who devise elaborate plans to avoid the angel of death when their time has come? Perhaps part of it is an evolutionary attempt to hold on to life with all our might so that we survive. Perhaps another part of it is our heart's natural tendency to cling and attach to what we know and what we love. Yom Kippur was our time to practice letting go. We practice dying so we remember what it is to really live fully. In some Tibetan Buddhist traditions, the monks wake up each morning and practice dying in order to throw their lives into stark relief. They slow their heart rate down, stay extremely still, and practice just being within the natural stillness of their bodies and the world. They then return to the world with a freshness and newness, eyes that are seeing their world again as if for the first time. I believe this might have been what happened to Moses after he climbed the mountain. We are told that his eyes didn't dim, that he still retained his freshness. I think Moses was wide awake when he died. I think he saw life clearly and fully. I think the kiss he shared with the divine was a release of life into life. That was the model he left for us. And Judaism, in its infinite wisdom, reminds us of the cycle of death and life in the Torah itself. We read this Parsha of Moses' death often at the same moment, Simchat Torah, as we restart the cycle over again. Moses' exhale becomes Adam's inhale. We can and should grieve the loss of Moses and all who have died and will die. We can fear our own deaths, but we have a reminder every year that underneath all the drama and grasping in life, 
we can let go and find God again. We can come panim al panim, face to face with breath and with the one. An incredibly beautiful teaching from Yale Shai. Judith. One other comment. Mark Twain wrote something very interesting. He said, we have no fear of all the life that went on before we were born. We weren't here. Why do we have such terrible fear about the life that will go on after we're gone? I, I wow. never thought about that. Well, I'm going to imagine everybody can answer that for themselves. You know, that, <laughs> well, yeah, because we're our kind ego of wasn't involved. There, there right? was no the ego of, involved before we were born. The but. Thought of not, but the thought of non-existence is really anxiety producing, I find. Like, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to not be here. I don't want to not see this, the sunshine and I don't want to not see what, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I get it right. Ultimately yeah. that's how I comfort myself. I didn't exist before and it didn't suck and I'm not going to exist again. So hopefully it won't suck still. Um, but sure. I don't want to not be here. Right. So, I mean, I think what the beauty for me of, of Torah is it really understands our anxiety as human beings, right? It totally gets it. Um, and Alexander saying the, the fear of being truly alone, which is why I think Moshe's death scene is so beautiful. Cause what the rap, cause what the text understands Alexandra is exactly that we're terrified in death of being alone. And, um, and I don't mean dying alone. I mean, being like alone and, and the Torah gets it right. The Torah understands that and has God kiss Moshe in Rashi's interpretation, kiss Moshe to death. The ultimate reunion between God and this and the spirit of life that God has breathed into human beings. It's reunited. And so in that sense, it is is the opposite of being utterly alone. It is a reuniting with the one capital O. And I think Torah is genius at understanding that that is our core anxiety, right? It is being existentially alone. And I can tell you from having been with dying people, you know, people ask me lots of questions when they're dealing with a loved one as they're dying. And what I, the answer I find myself giving the most is people die the way they lived, Unless it is a horrible, tragic, you know, whatever, which that is what it is. But for the most part, people die like they live. So people who have had really lovely, full, loving lives, I find, tend to, to do death pretty well. You know, people who have been anxious and fearful and resistant and have battled their whole lives. All their lives. Battle at the end. And I had one, I had one congregant. I went to see him. He was dying. He's been dying at home in hospice. And I came and I said, how are you this morning, Bob? And he said, I'm pissed off. I said, okay, you want to tell me what's going on? And he said, I'm pissed off that I'm still here. And I thought that's the way the man lived his whole life. He was angry that he wasn't dead yet because it didn't happen on his time. And he wanted control of that. And he was going to fight at the end being pissed off. I'm like, Sounds to me like you got some work to do before anyone's letting you go anywhere. So you might want to get at that. Like I'm here. The to sad help. thing is people who spend their entire lives dying instead of living. Of course. Of course. All right. Um, you know, I, I just want to say my, um, uh, my mother is 98 and really healthy and not much is wrong yet, but when I get my blood work done at the doctor, he always says, oh, you're going to live forever. And I think, I, I don't know that I want to live forever. I don't know that I want to live once my eyesight is failing and I can't get up and hug by then great grandkids and can't participate. Um, I don't know that that's such a good thing anymore, you know, to live past the age of where we're really able to function in well, this, this life. This is, what, this is when... I turn to my elders. This is when I turn to Sarah Moskowitz and to Ruben and to Al Avens, who's here, who are in their 90s, right? And I look at them and I learn. Every time I see them engage here or anywhere else, I learn. There are ways we remain engaged and there are people who don't, right? right. But, but looking at right. the three of these 
you know, not what are they called? Nonogenarians, you know, Al Avens and Ruben and, and Sarah, like, I, it's like, okay. When I think me at 90 something, I'm like, okay, no, thank you. But then I look at them and I'm like, okay. Right. Like if I could be, if I could grow up to be Sarah Moskowitz, oh my God, sign me up. Like I'm so in. Right. And, and so and the Mickey, question, yeah. and, and Mickey, and, and how I turn that around is I don't focus so much on, oh my gosh, do I really want to live to be 90, whatever? Cause hopefully I don't get to pick, like, hopefully like it, it's just going to happen. What I need to do is make sure I'm living now in a way that I might could be a Sarah Moskowitz or an Al Avens or a Ruben Rossloff. How, what do I need to do now to ensure that if I do wind up living that long, it is a life of some quality. And that means both physically, emotionally, mentally, relationship wise, right? I want, you know, that if you're, if you have healthy and rich and enriching relationships, look how many times, how many times Ruben has somebody coming in, right? To check that his sound is working and this is working. And here's Emma Linda, his granddaughter-in-law, right? Joining us for Torah study. So like, that's got to give him such nachis to see that face. Look at that face. Oh my God. Right. Mm-hmm. So such nachis he must get, he must get from seeing her face and engaging right in learning with her. So if we have those in place that then mm-hmm. we don't need to worry about how long we live. Mm-hmm. Right. But so Jody, I know what you mean. I go there often and it, cause I'm just weird that way, but but I really mean it when I say these are my teachers. And then it's like, okay, let's what just you- give them a hand because they're <laughs> right? really, thank you. Thank you. want to be Sarah Moskowitz. Right. And if you, if you yeah. look at these people, they have rich relationships yes. and they, and they are happy people. They're, they have their stuff that they could be complaining about all the time, but they don't. Right. They, they spend their time engaging with life despite all of the limitations and pain that I'm sure, um, you know, must, must be present constantly. So um, Rabbi, is new it, world model. I, I was thinking so much of this tension, I guess, if you want to, that's how you want to put it between life and death, this constant, you know, and someone just uh, noted that so, someone always uh, lives as if they're dying. And isn't it a Western, like a Westernized notion of this distinction because I feel like other cultures, you know, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I, I think, I mean, I definitely have anxiety and at roots with the unknown of not knowing how it's going to end probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I think it all roots or just the unknown. And, but I feel like it's such a Westernized notion, yes. uh, you know, cause like every day is a death when you really think about it, but is it, is a death? I think it's the way we're viewing death. So I think, and this and this points out that actually death is something that's potentially very intimate. So and so loving. I think, that, I think there's a like seven hour answer to that question. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you the simple answer, which is yes. I think in the West we have a terrible, terrible time with death because we so cling to material you know, things, we cling to permanence. We cl- like, we are always hoarding because it's going to protect me from death, right? If I have enough stuff and a big enough house and a nice enough vacation, then I'm not going to die, <laughs> right? And, and like Emma Linda says, we cling to the illusion of control. That is very much a Western um, issue. And there's, there's good things that go with that. But for sure, one of the things we have a really hard time with is death, letting go, transition, you know, like giving over control giving over power um like like it said about the monks they they die every day and like what an amazing practice right that would flip westerners out completely so but what we try with meditation and stuff like that is to just hold hold the anxiety and as pima children the buddhist nun would say hold our seat it's like okay this makes me anxious can i take a breath and go into that anxiety rather than eat something or shop for something or have sex or take a nap so that I don't have to deal with that anxiety, which is what we do in the West. And other cultures are just, I think universally we're anxious about death and about loss. I love Yael Shai when she says, our job is to let go of Moshe. And it, it's really hard. Like, I don't want people I love to die, right? I, I don't want to let go. I, what? Like, why, why would anyone like that? So it's not about, I think it's a universal experience that we're anxious about it and we resist it. That's okay. Cause it means we're attached to life and love and connection. That's good. But the fact is we're going to have to let go. And I think other cultures are better about 
exploring that and, and our anxiety around it and our resistance to it. And they work with resistance rather than act out of resistance. In the West, we act out of our resistance. Um, people who, who choose to, to engage with that resistance are the people who over time have less, less occasions of anxiety, right? I mean, it may come up, but they, they work through it quicker because they're able to stay present to it and attend to it. Um, you can still let go and still believe in life of some sort after death, says Sheldon. Um, so for some people, that is the comfort. That is the comfort that they will have life after death. I envy them. I'm not one of those people. Um, I'm a wave in the ocean. I believe I've always been ocean. I'm always going to be ocean. Like Judah said, before I was ocean, then I'm doing this wave, Amy Bernstein wave thing, and then I'm going to be ocean again. I never stopped being ocean. Um, that's the only comfort I can take, um, right? But the, but but for some people, it's truly comforting. And for certain religious traditions, it is deeply comforting. And kind of the point is to live your life in a way that that you're going to have the kind of afterlife that you want. I mean, without that, we wouldn't have the pyramids in Egypt, right? We wouldn't have pyramids if it weren't for the Pharaoh wanting a certain kind of afterlife. Um, all right. So I want, I'm mindful of, of time. Um, and I want to answer the question of Shmini Atzeret, but I want to tie this all together. And sometimes the universe works in my favor and I have the perfect way to tie this all together with a bow. Here we go. My good colleague and friend, Michael Strasfeld, is going to bring it home for us. So Shmini Atzeret, I'll, I'll talk for a second about that. So Shmini Atzeret is a holiday that is one day after Sukkot. So Sukkot ends, Sukkot is a seven day festival. So we get this seven day festival and then Torah says something weird. Torah says, God wanted the people to do atzeret, to do a delay, a tarrying, a lingering. And so a day eight gets added to Sukkot that is called Shemini, the eighth, Shmini, the eighth atzeret of tarrying, of delaying, mm -hmm. of hanging around. Because, say, the rabbis, the rabbi, it doesn't explain it in Torah, but the rabbis explain it that God is not ready to let us go. That we've been hanging out with God in the sukkah, and the point of the sukkah is to remember the time of wandering in the desert when we were aware that we were completely dependent on God. And so we were intimate with God in a different way. And we were on our honeymoon. We got married at Sinai and we're on our honeymoon. Okay, now we, uh, here's a good Jewish story. What's a Jewish honeymoon? We wander in the desert for 40 years, not knowing what the hell's going on. Okay, that's a Jewish honeymoon. But we are on our honeymoon with God and God misses that. And when we do it every year at, at Sukkot, God is so happy to be back with us because we leave our houses. We move into like the little, the studio apartment we had with God when we first got married and we were starving graduate students. And God is so happy to be back with us like that, that God wants us to just stay one more day. Just hang out with me one more day before you go back to your lives and your distractions. All right, so let's look at what Michael Strassfeld says and tying all of this up with a beautiful bow. Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are preceded by Sukkot. Again, seven days followed by one day. But here there is no intervening period as there is between Pesach and Shavuot. Shmini Atzeret is the eighth day. That is the day after seven. Seven being a perfect number in Judaism signifies a complete unit of time. Each week ends with the seventh day, Shabbat. Thus, the eighth day is the day after time. It is the end of both kinds of time. It is thus not just the promise of redemption, but the actual moment of it. God said, remain with me at Seret, an extra day, a time beyond time. Shmini Atzeret is a taste of the messianic, of the time when Torah the Holy One and Israel will be one. This comes to a climax with Simchat Torah. Instead of circling around the Torah scrolls as we did on Sukkot, 
during Hoshanot, we circle with the Torah scrolls, which we do on Shemini Atzeret, by the way. We take the connecting link between us and God, our ketubah, our marriage contract, as it were, and circle around an apparently empty space that is filled with the one who fills everything. So we take the Torah, our ketubah, our marriage contract, right, between us and God, and then we circle with an emptiness at the center because we are, we are circling the empty space that is filled with the one who fills everything. Simchat Torah celebrates a Torah of joy, a Torah without restrictions or sense of burden. We circle God seven times with the Torah and then no more. There is no eighth circling. We read from the last portion of the Torah just before we enter the promised land, but leave this last few verses unread, the Torah unfinished. It is a magical moment when all that exists are God and Torah and ourselves. We throw ourselves into endless circles of dancing and become time lost. But this moment must pass. Time does continue and therefore the unity is broken. The sun rises and historical time briefly halted begins again. Cyclic time begins as well for we start again the Torah reading cycle. There is no end to Torah. After Deuteronomy, we immediately begin Genesis as part of a constantly renewing cycle. The words of Dr. Rabbi Michael Strassfeld, a beautiful writer and teacher, uh, and I'm happy to say a friend. So we came to Deuteronomy. We said, Chazak, Chazak, Venit, Chazak. We, we end, Vizot we end Deuteronomy. And so we begin immediately, um, we begin uh, Genesis. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shemayim ve-et ha-aretz, ve-aretz ha-yta tohu v-avohu, v-choshech al-pnei tehom, v-ruach Adonai merechefet al-pnei ha-mayim, v-yavdel Elohim, sorry, v-yomer Elohim, Yehi or Vayehi or Vayar Elohim et Aor Kitov Vayavdel Elohim Benaor Uvenachoshech Velachoshech Velaor Kara Yom Velachoshech Kara Laila Vayhi Erev Vayhi Boker Yom Echad. So God creates, right? It's God, the Choshech is all to home, the dark is over the face of the waters. And the spirit of God is hovering, flittering over the face of the deep. So we have Choshech, we have Ruach Adonai. So we have darkness, we have the spirit of God. We have water, Tehom. We've talked about Tehom and Tiamat, the, the Mesopotamian goddess. So we have all of this before creation. And then comes the moment God says, or there shall be light. And or and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and separates between the light and the darkness, calling the, the light day and the darkness evening. And there was evening and there was morning, day one. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.